fun. You can tell me how fucking good my coffee is, okay? I'm the one who buys it. Would you like to come upstairs for some coffee? Oh, no, thank you, I can't drink coffee late at night. It keeps me up. Shows it later on the best cappuccino! All right, welcome back. It's the Sub-Zero Coffee Podcast, and whew, I've got a juicy one in for you today. Last episode had Maxwell Colonna Dashwood on, very well-known coffee professional, and we had a uh, we did a topic that opened up a bit of a can of worms, got a lot of messages, but then something even, you know, the same day that I released that, I think it, I can't remember if it was before or after, I only saw it after, I, I, I swear to you all, I only saw it after, but the World Coffee Events announced... New sponsors, and uh, you know, while that doesn't, off the top of it, seem like a big deal, it kind of is because it, uh, the equipment that is used, it influences baristas' routines. And anyway, we'll get to the bottom of it in a moment. But today's guest is three-time Australian barista champion uh, Craig Simon. Craig Simon, welcome to the Sub Zero Coffee Podcast. Thanks, Kirk. It's good to be here. Well, how, how long have I been? Ever since I started this podcast, I've been harassing you. Uh, I think harassment is probably the, the best, most descriptive word, the most accurate word uh, to come on this podcast. How long's it been, how long's it been now? How many times have I asked you? It's been a while. I think I've resisted pretty well, but you've uh, finally broken me down. Well, there's a lesson in all this for uh, all the boys and girls, the men and women, <laughs> and all in between listening at home. Um, never give up because you just might get Craig Simon on your podcast. How you been, Craig? Yeah, I've been I've been as well as can be. Obviously, it's an, an interesting time for all of us. You know, no matter what uh, what your daily and and yearly experience is like, um, we're all facing the same challenges. So I think particularly for all of uh, our hospitality uh, kinship, we're we're doing it pretty tough and and trying our best to keep everyone fed and caffeined and all that sort of stuff under pretty challenging conditions. But it's good to talk about some of the some of the other parts of coffee that gets us excited when we, uh, when we think about, you know, pushing forward. Well, we've got to remember the good, you know, a lot of bad, but we've got to remember the good. Um, yeah, well, I mean, one thing I will say before we get into this is the, the Omicron variant is the dominant strain in the world right now. And Omicron to me, like I'm a very weird person. You know this, Craig. I, you know, I, I, I always have an uncanny ability to liken some real life experience to some movie I've seen. But Omicron is just like, to me, it's like a Lord of the Rings character name or something, you know, like, where is Omicron? You know, the Council of Omicron. I don't know. It just, it can be used in so many different contexts. Like, that's the one good thing about Omicron that I like. Yeah, I don't mind that. I, I to me, like when you talk about that, it immediately makes me think of the sequel to Oblivion. Skyrim. I don't know why. Yeah, yeah. It just feels like the sequel to Oblivion is Omicron. You know what I mean? It's like the next, the next phase. I didn't know you were an Elder Scrolls fan, Craig. I'm into all sorts of stuff. So, see, this yeah. is this is why it's so good getting you on the podcast. We get to know these things, you know. It's great. Oh, and by the way, everyone, if you can hear that growling, I'm um, I'm babysitting my sister's Chihuahua, and um, he just what are you what are you barking at? His name's Ronnie, so you might hear a bark, you might hear a growl throughout the podcast. He can see Craig on the screen, so I mean, perhaps he's finding that a bit daunting. But anyway, here we go, Craig Simon. Let's start with you. Where did you come? Ah, oh, my. D- Family's coming home. All right, get it out of your system. All right. Where did you grow up in Sydney, Melbourne? Where, where, where are you from? I'm from Sydney originally. The um, uh, I grew up close to Northern Beaches. Northern Beaches moved around a little bit, but uh, yeah, pretty much all Sydney. And um, when uh, when I, my dad was a musician, 
Um, I pretty much intended to be a musician. I was a musician for a very long time. Um, I started playing when I was five and I started performing when I was 11 or 12 or something like that. You're a and, drummer? Yeah, I played the drums and, and um, it, it wasn't until I was 29 that, that I started uh, needing to add extra income to being a, a touring musician. And Not the most uh, uh, lucrative venture? Uh, sadly not. It's it, uh, it's uh, really, you know, it's hard not to feel really sorry for all of the people involved in the arts. I think, you know, even COVID aside, such a topical thing with them finding life difficult. I think the arts is such an important part of social fabric, but so undervalued. Um, I just like, I think hospitality is such an important part of the social fabric. You know, I think with feeding people and entertaining people, it, it adds real value to life. But anyway, um, yeah, I, I needed another job and, and I was trying to find something that would work with nighttime performing. I mean, you know, so coffee morning, nighttime performing. I thought that was a great idea until I tried to do it together. <laughs> um, and that, that effectively meant ending up working from 6am until 6pm doing hospitality stuff. And then I'd put my suit on and go and do gigs. Um, and that, you know, I'd finish at one, two in the morning. And so I was getting two and a half hours sleep and working just a little bit too much. And, and it, uh, it made me a bit sad. What was the most insane moment of your life during that period so i mean you, you can't go i mean hearing that maybe you did handle it okay maybe you were a bit kobe bryan-esque and you could go all those sort of working crazy hours without sleeping but was there was there an incident or something that just happened like did your health deteriorate at all when you were doing that crazy amount of work yes yeah, it, uh, it, it um initially like i think uh you can only do that i think if you're one of those people that that feels like it's a responsibility you do it so i shouldered that i think the hardest well when i started i actually did 28 days straight at the cafe that was my first week at the cafe 6 a.m till 6 p.m um i was uh, i was on turns out under minimum wage um we all we all have that little moment where we really oh i've been systemically underpaid <laughs> yeah oh, it's great and i did 28 days because no one would work with the owner it turns out i didn't find that out for a little while it took a while to work out that he was um a little bit crazy and and quite difficult to work for and uh, at the same time i was doing about five gigs a week so i was 6 a.m till 6 p.m seven days a week five nights i was uh 6 30 until 2 a.m and um and there was one week where I had a run of shows at the um, the Arts Centre in Melbourne at the Spire, and we were playing every night to 3,500 people sold out shows. And, you know, you finish the night with a standing ovation and then go home for two hours sleep and you'd put your, you know, put your shoes on again and, and go and wash dishes for 12 hours. I must admit that that probably broke, that broke me actually, like that kind of emotionally broke me that, there was such a dichotomy of of you know what you need to do to support the other i couldn't really manage it but not long after that i just physically couldn't manage it i was getting really sick and um i, I just couldn't do both i actually got sacked from a band because um I, I probably looked like a heroin addict i was i was literally sleeping on stage i couldn't keep my eyes open and i was sleeping on stage i could hear the music and i was responding appropriately but probably wasn't the best optics for uh well, I was I was thinking about this and I wrote this down as something I wanted to sort of ask you about is that I've seen the movie Whiplash. Have you seen the movie Whiplash with yeah, Miles Teller it. as this jazz drummer? 
Yeah, yeah. Did you have that. sort of similar experiences to that? Did you have any like savage coaches, or were you just that committed to being a jazz drummer? Like, is there any real life comparisons between that guy and a Craig Simon? Uh, my experience is no. I can probably like I can probably regale a couple of tales that uh, maybe they're a little bit more psychologically challenging from that perspective. Uh, I did have one. Um, I, I certainly, when I was learning, none of my teachers have been anything other than encouraging and supporting I, I feel like you don't really play music if you're there to make people you know to break people I, I don't think it's like sport in that sense um the but I did have one teacher who used to say some pretty funny things I remember one time he said to me um you know stop you, you you're playing great but it sounds like shit and you know those sorts of things where you really struggle to to i guess compute what what do they actually mean are they like are they fundamentally saying i'm no good or are they just saying your ideas are poor or are they saying you need to practice your execution you know it's so hard to work out when you're trying to learn um but yeah i I don't remember anything like that the only thing i could possibly add on that is that perhaps maybe there's more of an american-centric concept to that where you know, you have, it's a lot more structured music at schools in America. Uh, I, was, I was lucky to tour there with my school um, when I was 16 and we got put up at a few schools and they would practice a lot. It was very much more, it felt a lot more like a, um, a team sport, you know, like there was a drum corps and it was, it was intense what they were doing. You know, they would do, you know, an hour and a half before school, they'd do a lunch practice, they'd do three hours after school and they'd do that three, four times a week. So maybe you do come across high school teachers that are that um, that kind of uh, I don't know um, overwhelmingly uh, I guess abusive. Really, that's all you could really think about it from that movie, isn't it? Yeah, it's just well, like uh, that's pretty aggressive behaviour from a teacher. Oh, look, I, I would I'd be inclined to agree there, Craig Simon. But um, there's there's one incident that I was made aware of that uh, I think. I think I think we've got to discuss, mate. And uh, mm. it's kind of it's a bit of a legendary story, really. And I heard it third hand. It is the uh, I think you know what I'm talking about, don't you? I know what you're talking kick, about. Kick. You want to talk about you want to talk about the unfortunate combination of uh, the great tragedy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The uh, so I, I was on the road with the band, and the band leader owned an aeroplane. So it was a a uh, twin engine Piper Chieftain ten seater, and we used to fly to gigs. And um, and that was cool. It was actually really good. We could do. He worked out that we could do thirty percent more gigs in the year by flying to them um, rather than taking the commercial airlines because you just couldn't physically get to and from a lot of these places in time. So from his perspective, it made commercial sense. He and his brother actually got their pilot's license when they were fifteen and sixteen. Like they they loved flying, so it, it wasn't it wasn't the right brothers, was it? No, nah, not quite. I'm not that old. Come on. The, uh, I know I'm old, but not that old. And so, yeah, so anyway, we're flying and we stopped it. We we're going to Adelaide. It was as far as we would fly because you needed to refuel for that one. We'd refuel. We refueled in Mildura and, uh, and we'd left like really early in the morning. I don't know, 6.36, something like that. And musician o'clock, you haven't had anything to eat. You're pretty hungry. There's definitely no cabin service on a uh, Piper Chieftain. And um, so I was hungry. I went to the cafeteria. <laughs> weren't many options. I looked in the fridge and there was a chocolate um, oat milk staring me in the face and there was a, uh, 
a um, an orange juice with pulp staring me in the face, and I just couldn't decide which one I wanted. And um, so I had both. And it turns out at fourteen thousand, we had to go to so we had to go to fourteen thousand feet, which you're allowed to go to for ten minutes in an unpressurized cabin because not enough oxygen. At that um, height, milk starts to curdle and bubble in your stomach. It turns out so. Um, I'll save everyone the details, but uh, I, I, I made a, a, um, a mixture of those two. I, I, I presented a mixture of those two beverages, um, not unlike a signature drink. And I think really to bring it back on topic um, of coffee, I think it really goes to show just how careful you have to be with signature drinks with too much acid and milk. It's not a good combo. Okay. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I'll, we'll leave the rest to the imagination of the listeners, but I think you can get that so to bring you all up to speed, I got told that story by Todd Souter. And Todd Souter, former business partner of mine, great friend, he's not really the type of guy to go asking those sorts of questions about those sorts of events. So you would have had to just been saying it to someone else and he would have heard or you just thought to yourself, all right, well, I'll tell Todd this story. To be honest, I actually don't know why I told it. Um, it had to be some, It somehow had to be related to what we were doing. I, I wouldn't actually divulge that story just because, like, I don't have any desperate need to talk about making a bad choice between uh, combining milk and, and orange juice. So, yeah. It reminds me of an incident I had in Korea with soju, but we won't go there. All right. I made that mistake too, yeah. Oh, there we go. All right. I, I like it. I feel more normal now. Coffee stuff. All right. So we just established that you worked for a, um, you know, autocratic, crazy boss, your first ever coffee job. You worked, you know, the standard, you know, pre-treat um, people normally era shift of uh, 12 hours, six to six. Um, so that's how you got into coffee. At what point did you start sort of roasting? Because to, yeah, right, what point did you start roasting? Uh, well, so obviously that job was just waiting tables and, and um, washing dishes. Ah. And so the next phase, um, eventually he let me on the machine, actually. After six, six months, he wanted a day off. It's his first day off, I think, in six months. And he's like, you do the machine, don't touch anything. And so, um, like, I'd had, a, I'd had a coffee lesson. I did a coffee lesson at William Anglis, the three-day thing, um, obviously more than six months ago. And so I was like, okay, I know what to do. Um, I kind of knew what to do, but really I didn't know what to do. And I made the fatal error of adjusting the grinder, and I'm sure every single barista has made an error of adjusting the grinder the first time and getting yourself so far away from understanding what you've done and calibration of where it needs to be that you just, you're out in the weeds and you don't know how to get it back. Um, I guess the caveat here is that uh, there was no grind on demand grinders. There were no EKs. It was all old school, fill your dosing chamber up with coffee, three clicks. And so, um, and so that meant that if you made an error on the grind setting, you didn't find out about it until you got through the dosing chamber. And then if you'd accidentally not recognize that it took all of that coffee to get through before you saw the grind change you've probably changed the grind another five or ten times um, each handle not changing then all of a sudden it's like oh that's better oh that's better that's really good what's happening i'm not getting any coffee pouring out of the machine Mm. and so that was my first experience and so like i'm trying to make coffee for 40 minutes for these people who are standing there getting more and more angry um and uh, and the tension was building. I eventually called the boss, and and he stormed in and he swore at me and like don't touch that and um, never touch that again. And 
Um, so, you know, I guess maybe my whiplash experience had more to do with coffee than with music. Um, okay. I feel like whiplash is a more representative experience of that first um, coffee-making experience. And so I kept going. Uh, I kept making coffee for some reason. I must enjoy that level of um, self-punishment and flagellation and stuff. So I should, I should, um, um, I should uh, probe you on this before we move on to too much more. You had a brief stint studying engineering, is that correct? Yeah, I studied engineering. Um, I hadn't started studying engineering yet, though. So after that place, about six months and after that experience, I realized that it wasn't a supportive, um, emotionally safe, or even financially safe environment. <clears throat> and so I got a, I got a gig at a, um, at a 115-seat cafe that had one barista on the machine. And, um, and that effectively meant that you got absolutely slaughtered from 7.15 until midday. And so I did, uh, and it was like a 15, 20-minute wait from 7.15 till midday with no chance to do anything other than go as fast as as is humanly possible. Um, and during that time, I had a Monday off, so I was like, I, want, I can't keep doing this. I, I need to do something else. And so I started studying engineering because um, I wasn't that successful at school, not because I couldn't do it, just because I, I didn't really fit in with the structure of school. And so... Um, yeah, I studied. I loved it. Actually, it's the most successful of anything I ever studied. Um, you know, I did a bachelor's degree at the Conservatorium of Music, and I started a, a master's degree there too. And um, I wasn't very successful. I didn't really know how to study. I hadn't really learned at school. And so the engineering, I really loved it. And it, it, you know, it it, um, it it made a lot of sense to me because my my hobbies are building things out of you know metal and mechanical things. So um, I guess I had a real tangible, practical. Um, application for this knowledge and the motivation to to study it, but I, I feel like this story might pop back in a little bit later in our conversation. Yeah, so. well, I mean, I could even use it to segue into what I wanted to ask you next. Is that you're sort of um, you're you're a roaster? So, Craig, you own Criteria Coffee, which is a roasting co-op. Would you call it? Yeah, I think um, I think if I shortened condensed it into what it fundamentally is, it really it's an education space, I guess. Um, the side, the, the the side outcome is that people come here to roast coffee, and and um, we we guide them through that process so that they can have had n- no experience before, or they can have had lots of experience before, or, or wherever they are, um, and we can help them do it better, or do it more efficiently, or just facilitate their ability to do it, because um, it's obviously a pretty expensive uh, process to set up a roastery, so. Um, mm. Yeah, yeah, that's that's what I do. In terms of touching back on when did I learn to roast, after that barista gig, I did that for about two years, and then I got a job at a roastery. Um, but I didn't start roasting straight away. I did uh, I did all sorts of stuff. I had a sales rep gig there first, and I hated that. And then I worked on their espresso bar, and I didn't hate that, but it, it, I needed to move on to something else. And and then I started roasting. So I've been roasting about 12, 13 years, I think. It's a fair whack of time to be roasting. And, you know, among all of that, you've... Um You've been competing in barista competitions as well. So as I mentioned at the very start, you're a three-time equal leading with uh, Hugh Kelly, three-time Australian barista champion. Um, that does when when I say that does that uh, does it bring a smile to your dial at all, Craig? Uh, you know, looking yeah. back, and you've you've achieved a lot. Yeah, well, I mean, you can't not be proud of hard work. I think it definitely. Um, it definitely uh, really talks to your point at the beginning of you know don't give up. Because I, I competed ten years in a row to win three times, you know it, it, it's 
it wasn't a case of, you know, just jump on and, and bingo, Craig, you've won great. Uh, it really was a hard slog. And, um, you know, I got to compete against some incredibly high caliber baristas that I really think pushed me and pushed the industry forward. And I think as a, as a body of, of, um, of people that were keenly interested in exploring the industry and coffee, I think it provided a really, uh, really rewarding space to do that. And it provided impetus and, and um, I guess also a deadline to achieve these things. I, I always like to say of my competition, uh, the um, experience, for me, all of the really enjoyable part was everything leading up to getting on stage because that's where I did all of the learning and that's where I um, got to explore ideas of, of what I wanted to present and things like that. The, the performance side of things, um, you know, obviously it was familiar being a mu- performing musician, but it, it wasn't really, that wasn't the, the, the joy for me. Um, however, you know, no one, no one would hand a trophy back. I'm not, not complaining at all about success on stage, but um, I really enjoyed actually the, the exploration. I think it really, uh, it forged my um, definitely knowledge and vision of, of what I would like to see happen in coffee. Well, it's, uh, it's interesting hearing you talk about this and we talk about criteria and it makes me reflect on the first time I competed because it was at criteria. It was the, the, it was the sort of grand opening, I guess, of, um, of, of your business. And, um, yeah, first ever comp, uh, you, I managed to somehow come third and you gave me the trophy. It's a, it's a fond memory of mine, Craig. Oh, it's a great thing. You know, I think to be that successful, successful in your first go is amazing. Um, I certainly wasn't, I, I, uh, I came sixth in Victoria, my first go and like 20th in Australia or something like that. So, you know, Victoria is such an incredibly, well, the Southern region, I guess it was by the time you did it, such a, such a high quality competition coming third is an amazing outcome. And, you know, kudos and credit to you to achieve that outcome. Oh, well, mate, it's, uh, you know, I had, um, I had my sister's cooking for me and washing my clothes because I was studying, I was finishing my uni degree at the time. So I had my last ever exam the day before comp. So I had to squeeze a, a fair bit in. So, um, you know, I don't know how I did it. I was probably like you in the band days, looking a bit like a heroin addict. But, you know, somehow I managed to pull it off. But um, Pressure makes diamonds, Kirk. Pressure makes diamonds. Oh, you're too kind. You're too kind. All right. Speaking of competition, let's go there because this is a big reason as to why I got you on. And um, for those of you listening to the podcast for the first time or don't know much about competition – um, there is a sponsorship arrangement for a machine, a coffee grinder and water and various other things throughout the uh, World Barista Championship, World Coffee Events, if you will. Um, and for the last few years, the machine sponsor at the World Barista Championship has been Victoria Arduino, so they've presented the Black Eagle. And the grinder sponsor has been Malconic. So Malconic being a subsidiary of Hemro, long story short, you've got the Malconic Peak uh, E80, I think it is, or that's one of the new ones. And the, of course, the Malconig EK43, which is, I would say, the most popular grinder for competition use at the moment. There has been an, a change in sponsorship. So now there will be a new coffee machine, which is by uh, Barista Tempesta, Barista Attitude, I think it's called, the company. And, um, there's been a new water sponsor as well. well. I don't know if it's new, but BWT, Brewster Water Technologies, good good company. Um, great water filters, so they'll be there. Um, but I think the one that's caused the most uproar, and um, you know, you might not see a whole lot of it publicly, but I've been posting about it a little bit on my stories and this and that, and I've got dozens of messages. And 
it's like it's a very uh, it's such a partisan topic because people are just so for or against the change. But we've got a new grinder. It's the Mythos MY75, and so it's not a single dose grinder like an EK43 is. And I think this is a cause of a lot of you know anxiety or sort of uh, worry for a lot of competitors because it's really going to alter the way that um, you know you do your routine. You won't be able to. Freezing coffee off, off the top of the head, which is something I obviously like to do, might not be viable. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's been it's been uh, incredibly divisive sort of thing, and some people think it's to equalize uh, equalize the competition or say that, and um, you know opinions are well and truly split. Um, what do you make of the change, Craig Simon, off the off the top of the head? I like change. Um, is is probably. The, the overarching um, feeling about all of that, I guess. Does the, obviously, it's a it's a very multifaceted question and topic. Um, and maybe let's start with history first. Um, the sponsors have always changed, and the equipment's always changed. And when I started, the uh, the machine sponsor was um, Lamazoka, and we competed on FB seventies and then FB eighties. Um, uh, GB fives, obviously, same as an FB eighty. And, and then when, um, when uh, originally it was Nueva Simonelli, which is Victoria Arduino, when Nueva Simonelli um, won the sponsorship, we had, I think it was the Aurelia was what the machine was called. And it was, um, it was objectively awful. Not even subjectively. It was objectively awful. Uh, water temperature was very poor. Water temperature would go up if you flushed. Um, Group heads wouldn't behave the same. It, it was it was a real backward step um, in equipment, in, in my experience. Uh, however, it it forced people to adapt, and it forced people to really think about what they were doing. It forced people to understand the parameters and how they could get the best out of a machine to achieve their goals. I guess one of the one of the reasons you see so many mazokos in in the field in in the real world is that they do an incredible job of doing um, controlling all of those facets that a lot of baristas probably don't even realize it's controlling for them and then all of a sudden you have to think about like how long should i flush for when should i flush the machine what do i need my um my steps and my process to be to equal the outcome that I'm after and for it to be consistent. Um, and I think that that forces the people who are really good at these sorts of things to get better. And it also puts a little bit of a gap between um, the people that are able to, uh, I guess, lean on the, the existing um, wisdom and knowledge about how stuff works rather than actually work it out themselves. I could very easily liken it to Formula One. They've got a massive rule change this year. It is so massively different compared to the last uh, forever. Um, since the 70s, actually, they had similar aerodynamic devices. It's going to level the field a bit and it's going to allow the people that are exceptional, um, engineers and designers, to potentially create a better car than Previously, the people that were in front always stayed in front because everyone got better at the same pace, right? Um, and so I like those, I like those um, watershed moments where things change because I think it gives a, a real, it really demonstrates who is 
fully on top of the fundamental skills of being a barista. And I think some of those things get lost along the way. Certainly as I was competing, I saw it move from um, extremely highly skilled technical capability through to being able to be pretty lazy as a, as a barista and still get good results. Um, the second Aurelia that, so obviously uh, what are we, where are we at? Nueva Simonelli put in the Aurelia one or two or whatever it was. And it was really not fun at all. It made life difficult, um, but they got all of these barista world champions and, and finalists. They got a whole team of smart cookies to help them make it a whole lot better. The next one was, was great. And then they came up with the Black Eagle. Great. It makes really good coffee. Um, my memory of those machines is that they, they are very flattering from an espresso perspective. Like they really help you make a good shot. In fact, it's easy to, to get a good shot without necessarily doing the right things. They really narrowed the difference between someone who was technically a master and someone who was technically okay. Um, and so like that, you know, you could look at that as frustrating or great, depending on how you think about it. Um, it took a long time actually up until it was up until 20, I want to say, was it 2015 where you were required to use the sponsors grinder or was it 2016? I can't remember. Certainly 2014, we weren't required to use the sponsors grinder. Um, I used a compact, uh, Hide one with those Nueva Simonelli, well, Victoria Arduino mythos, the original version of it. Um, so you could use whatever you like. Uh, and then all of a sudden it, it, it became uh, an issue for the sponsors of not the machine that all of the other sponsors were like, Hey, we're giving you a whole lot of money and we don't even get to have our equipment on stage for a lot of these competitors. I don't think that's right. And so then it became a requirement um, that you had to use a Malkernig grinder. They were the first um, sponsor grinder sponsor where that became the rules. And back then the options, when it first became the, uh, options it was the um the uh it were obviously ek43 and the other one was the i've forgotten the name of it but it was the um the 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 prior grinder to the peak and they had a double hopper one and a single hopper one um and just i can't for the life of me think of what it was called but anyway they were the two options that you had you had a grind on demand espresso grinder and you had a single dose um per shot grinder with the ek and, you know, it presented, I guess, two options. I think what's really important for a lot of people to remember is that prior to Matt Perger using an EK43 in 2013, no one even knew they were a coffee grinder. Like, there were none. They were selling 100 of those per year. And after he came second in the world, they were selling, like, 200 a month, but they could only make 100 a year type of thing. You know what I mean? Like, it caused a massive problem for them. So, but the competition's been going a whole lot longer than just the EK era. So um, I think from a perspective of, oh, we can't make coffee anymore. Um, they've narrowed what we can do. They're trying to even the playing field with coffees. I think that people who are saying that aren't actually switching on their brain and using their intellect to work out, how can I achieve what I want to achieve out of that grinder? out of this grinder because there's always ways to do stuff. Yeah. And, you know? and I guess where I'll chime in here is like, I, I'm going to be uh, upfront with you here, Craig. I think I'm trying to see the positives and, you know, I'm, I'm trying to have as uh, you know, the most objective look at it as I can right now. I'm slightly more of a skeptic of using this grinder at the world than I am sort of 
optimistic about it, um, and I, we'll get to why in a moment. But um, yeah, it's uh, it's. Do you think it will level the playing field? Is it, like for me, I feel like we have to as an as a sort of community and as a Bristol competitor sort of fraternity, if you will. At the end of the day, we need to get behind this decision and get behind the World Coffee uh, competitions because that is the body. And um, you know, if we if we tear it, if we all tear each other apart and sort of argue about it online, you know, no one really wins. And like Victoria Arduino's sponsored the competition, which is a great thing. I think in the last podcast I mentioned with Maxell, we, we need to sort of get more money into competitions. But also, I, I think the it, the last few years have probably highlighted a need where you do need to equal it out a bit. If we, if we look through the last few years' winners, you've got Immaculata, the Eugenoidus, you know, not cheap. year before that, La Palmel Toucan, Lactic Sidra used by Gion. Uh, you know, the Hero Series, a Legend Series, oh, man, it, it goes for quite a lot of money per kilo. So using, um, you know, you, you need a lot of money to use a coffee like that at Comp, lots year before that, um, Aga, you know, used something from Project Origin. Probably wouldn't have broken the bank, um, but, you know, did really well. And who won it the year before that? Dale Harris using the SL28 from Ernesto Menendez. So um, of those three, Dale used a – I think he used a peak, just used the one grinder. The rest of them used EKs. And then, I mean, if you go back, you when you last competed, you used an EK as well. Like, of the last – 10 sort of people to compete uh, or 10 World Brewster Championships. I reckon five or six of them probably used an AK. So, um, yeah, do you think it will even out the playing field as some people are saying that is the intention to do? Uh, I don't think it will. Um, I don't think that was their aim. But, the, um, I, you know, if we just do cold, hard light of day, for the people who, like, if you go for sponsorship of the competition, it's a tender, and effectively, whoever offers the most money with a grinder that meets the requirements, they're the people that are the sponsors. Like, that's just that's just flat-out fact. And, you know, obviously, Hemro Malkernig had offered enough financial um, incentive along the way, and, and it got to a point where, for them, it seemed not to have that financial value for them. Um, and someone else came along and, and offered more money or more money than Malkoenig was prepared to offer this time. And, and so they achieved their spot. Um, in terms of evening the field, like I said, I think cream rises to the top. And I think the people that are able to manage the challenges in front of them, I think they're the people that will do well no matter what. Um, I assume that you're implying the EK allows people to use less of a high quality coffee that costs a lot of money is that effectively what people are trying to say is that the well that's one argument yeah you'll 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 be sort of compelled in a way to use a bit more coffee than you would usually i think there are ways around that though like if you put your thinking caps on you don't have to have a kilo of coffee in a hopper to make it work well you certainly don't have to have a kilo of whatever coffee you're using to make it work Um, i think there are many ways around that and i think that if you sat down and learned how that grinder behaved and tried to put in place some um, systems and, and, and workflows to achieve what you wanted, you would achieve what you wanted and you will achieve what you wanted and someone will. Um, I absolutely guarantee that someone will work out how to make that grinder deliver individually dosed coffees. I have no doubt about it. Um, it may not look traditionally like the same way, uh, but they will work out how to do that. Um, I would argue, like, my, I did not 
choose an EK43 by choice for my last competition. I, I would not have done it. However, um, the other option that I was allowed to use was the whatever the other Malkernic grinder was, and it was not as good as the EK43 for my purposes. However, um, I think it's easily arguable that espresso shots off an EK aren't as aren't as uh, have have quite a few disadvantages that go along with the pros, and, and that you can get better outcomes off different grinders if you if you're searching for different things. I think that that um, like I said, everything presents its its set of challenges and parameters, and you have to work around them. Um, the best coffee I ever delivered, I, I genuinely think, was off that Conical Burr Compact. Um, it made those light roast, uh, highly aromatic, um, high acid, you know, um, Gesha type coffees that were popular back then have so much more texture than any of the other options. So you actually brought this texture and sweetness that supported all of those other things that I was never able to achieve out of an EK freeze, no freeze, whatever. You know, I didn't it's not like I didn't try and it's not like I didn't have the memory of the past. So well, let's, uh, I, I, I watched a bit of the, there was a promotional video that I saw on the, uh, the new grinder and, and I'll, I'll read some of the things that it said that are sort of new to the grinder itself. Quote. So we got user friendly touch screen, improved clump crusher, zero attention on the spout, easier maintenance, immediate accessibility, grinding temperature control with climber pro technology Integrated gravimetric scales, new iconic design, a totally redesigned grinder chamber, double fan on the back with new design. How does that all sound added on to a mythos? Sounds like good marketing speak to me. You know, it's the the add some bells and whistles and all the fruit type of thing, you know. the um, And in that sense, yeah, it is what it is, right? It's a marketing example of a grinder. I've got a question for you without notice, Craig. Yep. Have you ever worked a bar shift on a, with a mythos? Never. Okay. Well, they're uh, not always fun. <laughs> like, I've, um, I've been exposed to working. Actually, no, I take that back. Yeah, I have worked on bar shift with a, with a mythos. Um, the yeah, I know. I know that the original one had a whole lot of problems. I knew. I know that in uh, in heavy volume shops, it had a whole lot of issues with retention and and the that that. Um, polypropylene clump crusher failing all sorts of stuff that went wrong well yeah when um, i say improved clump crusher i think like you know anything's really an improvement on the last one and i should i should i need to say here i don't i'm not trying to pick a fight with victoria Arduino. i'm not trying to be critical i think they actually released some great things and you know the black eagle is a good machine the mythos you know when you when you find the right purpose for them they're a great grinder as well um but and and my I'd like to instead if anyone from Victoria Arduino is listening, I would like to extend the invitation to come on the podcast and talk about this because um, you know it's only fair that you get right of reply. But um, you know I think these are some of the reasons why you know for me it's just like oh god I've tried to replace those clump crushes a, you know a number of times and it's been a bit of an issue. Sometimes you have to realign the realign the the burrs. You know you know adjusting the grind can be a nightmare too. I want to read this post I saw on Facebook by John Gordon. So John Gordon, uh, multiple-time New Zealand Barista Champion, I think former UK Barista Champion as well. Anyway, and uh, he's been on the podcast before. You can, you can listen to that episode if you like. Go back, John Gordon. Um, all right, so here's his post. Quote, the new sponsors for Barista Championships look interesting with VA, Victoria Arduino, being the grinder sponsor. I wonder if there will be any restrictions on grinder use or if they will go down the exclusive route with the excuse of making an even playing field. 
Brackets, what a joke. It will never be an even playing field unless you put restrictions on the price of coffee used and coaches and overall restriction on spend. Otherwise, anyone can spend crazy amounts of money to get the best help, the best coffee, and the best gear. So if it's only exclusive use of what... Sorry. If it is only exclusive use of the what looks to be a new version of the mythos, one baristas lose that flexibility that the EK has given many people over the last decade. If this is the case, we are very much going back 10 years in time. And of course, I'll always bring up the modification question of burrs. There are a few types, including my own burrs, that have been made for the mythos. So I do wonder if WC will allow different types of burrs to allow some sort of way baristas can further display their own expression of the coffee they are using and presenting. And yes, I would love to see a barista on the world stage use my burrs. So I'll get through to the rest, to the last part. So if Brisa competition about to go through a wormhole to 2012, or will Victoria Arduino and WC manage to make some adjustments to the rules to at least allow alternative non-OEM burrs to be used as well as alignments able to be done? The bigger question is, how quickly will my question be swept under the rug? End quote. Now, John Gordon, allow me to lift that rug up and lift your question back up with it because we're talking about it right here, right now. What do you make of a post like that? And, and I'm assuming you're, you know, John, you're friendly, you're on cordial terms. Your response? Yeah, yeah I know John. Uh, I know him well. He's, he's a good fellow and he, he loves coffee and he loves, um, he loves trying to push the boundaries and he loves exploring just like I think many of us do. And, um, you know, the I guess I should disclose, I don't have any allegiance to any of these manufacturers either. So... Um, it's just my opinion. And, um, yeah, look, I think, like I said, there's always two sides, right? You can you can look at that and you can say that restriction creates um, creates a, a, a non-level playing field. He kind of, he's like, why, what, how is that levelling the playing field? But if you keep it the same, it is levelling the playing field. You know, there's there's an element of, of irony in saying you'll never level the playing field, um, but putting in, putting in a, a constant... Um, constant piece of equipment does, I guess. It stops people from being able to have, you know, 10 different grinders that they explore and all this sort of stuff. It changes that aspect of it. It should technically allow you just to turn up without having to ship it and have a grinder there from you. I, I, I like all of those things. And, um, yeah, that, like there were plenty of things that I would have loved to have changed about the fixed Malkernig rules, but it is what it is, you know, you don't get to make the 100 metres race 10 metres longer because you're faster over 110 than Usain Bolt, um, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I think we can, everything has its set of rules and its set of restrictions. Um, and, and finding the best way around that is how you, be, you, you demonstrate that you are the best. I still, I still firmly don't believe that having a hopper forces you to use significantly more coffee to make it a different experience um, for in terms of purchasing green. You still have minimum lots that you have to buy. So I don't think you can really get less than 12 kilos or so, or so from farmers of these fancy coffees. So, you, you know, you still have 12 kilos to play with. You don't, you don't, um, and the last part of that is it costs money to play at the top. You know, like you want to play the big game. There's an element of, financial commitment for it and and that just is what it is um having said that i I really like the idea i'm sure a few people have floated i love the idea of a um of a common round like they do in in the brewers cup where 
you know, everyone gets exactly the same coffee, exactly the same machine, exactly the same grinder, exactly the same amount of time to set up and they have to deliver some coffee fundamentals of espresso, milk coffee, long, whatever, you know, set some sort of um, compulsory competition and, and it's like a triathlon where all of, all of your results add together to equal a final outcome. I think that's a, a great idea, but I don't see how you could, uh, I can't see how you could take the, um, the exploration of coffee out of the World Barista Championships to level the field and make the competition as valuable to the industry. Because I think if you do that, it's no longer exploring what it could be. And it's all of a sudden a limitation. And I see no difference between complaining about the, the, the grinder limiting to if they limit what you can do with coffee. Like to me, what's the difference? As soon as you put any limitation in place, it's something that has to be worked around to be, to be smart about it. And if I had to make a choice of what the limitation is going to be, I'd rather have consistent equipment that I have to work around than some price cap on what I can do to give a great presentation that explores my idea. And, you know, realistically, there's not, there's really no way of enforcing a price cap in a barista competition. In my opinion, there'd be very, very hard to validate and there'd be numerous ways around it. But I've got to say, I really like your idea of a compulsory round. And this has probably been one of the most divisive uh, things that I get messaged about at the moment because obviously, you know, I've brought this topic to the public arena, so you're obviously going to get some response. Some people, you know, not happy at all with me, um, you know, fair enough. But I feel like, and this is a question, I think this is uh, it goes to the very identity of the competition and really the spirit of the competition. Do we want to find the best barista or do we want to award the person who has the best performance. And to me, they're different things. You know, you can practice the same routine over and over and over again and, you know, get so good at it and bring it on the day. And that's, you know, if you're the best, you win. But uh, for me, it feels like there's, you know, you're awarding in a way the best performer, but maybe not necessarily, you know, you know, perhaps the best barista on the day does get up. But do you, do you understand what I'm saying here, Craig? Perhaps if you went uh, with a compulsory round that factored into the points a bit more, had a bit more weight, you'd, you'd generally find who is the best barista in the world? Well, I think you need to add one thing. Like, I think you need to think about who's the best ambassador as well. You know, like, um, like you said, you can train a performer into being able to give a presentation um, who, and, and they, they actually potentially don't have a very thorough um, command of the the machine they don't potentially have a very thorough um, understanding of what they're talking about and I think that's a real um, missed opportunity that that actually keeps the professionalism of being a barista low you know it effectively keeps us to service people rather than professionals that really understand um, and the occasional performer you know show pony that you put on stage because they've been coached and, and helped along the way to achieve um, someone else's uh, ideal. Um, and yeah, look, I, I don't think having a compulsory round would necessarily have the best barista win all the time, but I certainly think having a compulsory round would add two value benefits to it. The first thing is it would at least let people that um, have, have high quality skill uh, have a, a, a greater chance. And I think high quality skill is really important in a barista competition of skill. 
Um, I also think it may give you an ability to uh, diminish some of the, the inconsistencies in calibration between judging panels, which um, is undeniably there. And, um, and I also think that it gives you an opportunity for people who don't have as much um, financial uh, resource to be able to have a better chance as well, as long as they have the great primary skill, you know. Um, and I think that's a good thing. I think it would be an absolute shame to miss out on the presentation aspect. I think everyone should get their chance to present their idea because I think that's really, really the value of these competitions. The You know, you look at where coffee from a raw materials has come because of what people have presented and ideas that they've explored. You know, I look at coffee from when I started into started coffee 2003 um, and how far it's gone now because of competition. I've watched it. You know, I remember the first time that someone had put the, um, and I don't know if this is the first in the world, but certainly in Australia it was, you know, one of the competitors put the, um, the, the automatic dosing chamber from the, that little mini, um, uh, um, Mazza grinder that you used to get for the people used to use for decaf, they put it on the front of a rover. Like they they fitted it onto the front and they had a, a, a dose on demand timer grinder out of a rover. And then I remember someone making a timer box and putting that onto a dosing chamber grinder. Um, and then all of a sudden, we all now use grind on demand timed. Well, even now we're into weighed, you know, gr- um, weight the dose by, by, by delivery grinders none of this would have happened without people being able to explore and push the boundaries and and use their financial leverage you know if we had removed all of that this stuff wouldn't have happened anywhere near as quickly or had as much market impact and coffee would arguably not have advanced as far as it has um so you know i I think that that's that that's part of it it needs to be there i do i do really love the idea of technical but because that's I, i have a um, I feel like one of my strong suits is technical. I would have loved to have had an advantage over other competitors because of having a technical component because I think I would have done better. Um, and that's competitive advantage, you know. Does it level the playing field? Maybe. It certainly, um, it certainly allows people who have high-quality technical skill to do better. Um, does it help the people that don't do well? Probably not. Do they have access to be able to practice 12 hours a day leading up? Um, maybe not, you know, who, who knows what everyone's circumstances are. Um, I I just don't, I don't know that you can make a competition of excellence, uh, where everyone gets a ribbon. You know, I just don't know, like you have to have, you have to have an order of, um, success and you could modify that order of success in any way, you know, by changing protocols, changing process. And it wouldn't necessarily make for more fairness. You just change that outcome. I have an idea. Um, Tell me. I think that, say, for example, we're about to, uh, to, to sign up for a competition, which uh, you know, I'll be doing this year. I'm going to have another crack. When you're signing up, you've got to pay your registration fee and you've got to pay membership, right? Could there be, for me personally, I don't know what everyone else's circumstances are, and, and often in a lot of the cases, the competitor will be their fees and whatnot will be covered by the company. Um, would it be an option to sort of add an extra hundred dollars to each fee and and use that as part of a uh, you know create a fund where we can support 
sort of people in lower income countries or not quite in the position to you know, splash out on big routines and whatnot. Is there an idea, is there something we can do that's a bit more sort of um, generous towards those people? Because I, I look at someone like Sasha Sestik, for example. He coached Agnieszka to World Brewster Competition victory in 2018. First woman to ever do it. Came from Poland, small small sort of country in Eastern Europe. Then you've got someone like Martin Shabaya this year, Kenyan. First time an African competitor has become, has finished in the top six. Um, Sasha, you know, coached him, helped him get the coffee, all that sort of stuff. I can't really think of anyone that's done more for, you know, helping lift up people from underdog nations in, in terms of competition success. Is it what more can we do in that space? So if we if we if we don't want to change the rules too much or the rules that we are sort of thinking about modifying aren't going to have the desired effect of evening it out the competition, what more could we do? Do you think? Yeah, I, mean, I think that there there can always be um, benefactor parts of everything, and I think that having having a fund that does provide assistance for the um, people that have less resources, I think is a great idea. You know, I think that um, I think that it's it it moves into dangerous territory um, when you have individuals slash companies doing it because is it is it genuinely benefactorial or is it marketing you know like this there to me for it to be genuinely valuable it needs to be a a a nondescript pool of patronage where you're not doing it for your name you you're just contributing to the to the greater good um and in competitions it's tricky isn't it because you have you have an an order outcome and that order outcome defines very very specifically defines the value for each individual in their ranking you know the people that come first uh, their their careers the the trajectory of their careers is immensely greater than second down and if you make the finals your career trajectory is a lot greater than if you never make the finals and so um, you know what what really is the value of it uh, is it a value of pursuing your own excellence and boundaries um, will you make a massive difference to the people that come 52nd if they come 40th? Uh, you'll make a difference for their own personal self-value, self-worth, uh, but you won't, you won't change their position in the, in the global industry of coffee. Unfortunately, I think that's really sad. I wish that wasn't the case. I would love to support the bottom, the bottom half of the field that don't have resources. I think that would be amazing. I wouldn't want to do it with my name. I, I would happily contribute, but I wouldn't. I don't want to do that for credit. Um, if I want to do stuff for my own personal outcome, I'll just market my business and things like that. I think if you're trying to support something um, from from a patronage perspective as a benefactor, it's not about you. It's actually about supporting the industry. You know, I have lots of musician friends of mine that have invisible benefactors that support their outcome because they love the arts. And, and I would love to see more of that. I would love to see part of the the um the global competition sponsors yes they provide the machines and all of that but i would love that part of their sponsorship fee got directed towards supporting the bottom half of the team you know group or whatever whatever that looks like would be amazing um but you know you have you have so many fingers in the pie you know and and along that chain people need to um change their expectation of what they receive out of that pie so that others can have some of it, and and um, you know, I think, I think there's a lot of parallel with 
a lot of these, um, you know, like women's sporting uh, um, associations and how there's lots of talk of what's required to actually make it, um, you know, fair and equitable as opposed to just, you know, give, give, give it a chance. You know, the, the difference that you need to make, if everyone gets the same, people that have been held back are so still so far behind, they never catch up, right? Um, and, you know, it's, there's an element of the same sort of thing for, for this competition. And, you know, what are we going to do to help the people at the bottom of it? What the grinder is doesn't matter. You know, what the grinder is helps that, that brand that's prepared to pay their marketing sell some grinders. And that's cool. I'm, I'm all for that, you know. And like we said at the beginning, the most capable baristas will make it work no matter what. It wouldn't stop John Gordon from doing as well as he did. Um, you know, it wouldn't stop me from doing as well as I did. We just work our way around it. Does it help the people at the bottom do better? I, I don't know, but it, I don't think it hinders them either. I've got a question for you, Craig, completely unrelated to everything we just talked about. I've, you know, I don't think I've asked you this question before, but I'm interested to hear your answer. What's the best competition routine, other than your own, of course, that you've seen? Worlds, nationals, regionals, who are they? When was it? What was the... Yeah, right. Uh, I think Mike Phillips was the best one I've ever seen. Where... 2010 world champion. Um, and it, it was incredible because he used three different coffees, two grinders. He purged grinders in between. He had a three-part signature drink that used a, um, the first, second, and third part of his extraction. Um, it was incredible. Like, it... it it changed the level of professionalism and skill required to be on the competition stage and be considered one of the best. It went from being, I guess it, it was, for me, it felt like it went from being a pro-am competition to a professional competition where you needed epic skill. Is this available on YouTube still? I'd hope so. What, uh, Mike, what's the, Michael Phillips, did you say? Michael Phillips is the USA competitor, and I'm pretty certain it was 2010. And I thought it was amazing. I thought that was a really amazing performance. Um, what else have I seen that was amazing? Uh, amazing in different ways. I think I've seen lots of snippets of amazing that perhaps if, if one person put all of them together, it would have made an incredible routine. I always remember Matt Perger. I didn't think his EK thing was actually his best, um, the, his best innovation. The best thing that I ever saw from him is he, back when everyone used Rover, um, conical burr grinders because that's all that was a good grinder uh, he made these um uh, uh drain pipe tubes that had an exact dose of coffee in it and it had a hole at the top so he could charge it with compressed air so that you got everything through the grinder and and it was it was so um thoughtful and innovative and like really pushing the boundaries of what anyone had ever done. It really like stepped out and I'd never seen anyone do it before. And really it, it you know, I mean, point in case, are you allowed to do that on the mythos? I don't know. Cause if you can do that, all of a sudden you've got an EK, right? Well, well yeah, I don't think you can because there's, you know, I think John Gordon sort of alluded to in his post. You can't even put aftermarket burrs into a, uh, into the grinder. Well, you couldn't with the EK. I'm not sure if VA will allow it or the event manager, but we'll see. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, aftermarket burrs is maybe a different thing to just forcing the coffee through the chamber a different way. But maybe there's a way of getting it through the hopper without being, without needing that. You know what I mean? Like, I thought that was really amazing. Um, you know, there's been some amazing showmanship things. I remember the Colombian performer in 2016 had this tube of uh, that went from somewhere over on his preparation table to the judge's 
placemats and no one had any idea. And then he put um, some cascara tea on dry ice and all of a sudden it appeared in front of the judges. Like incredible. Like, it's just such amazing showmanship and, and all of these awesome things. And I think that um, none of these people let what the equipment was be a barrier to what they wanted to present. And, and I think I feel like that's a really great way to summarise what we started talking about. Is there an issue with these grinders and with this equipment changing? I, I don't think there's any issue whatsoever because look at all of these examples from the past of people taking their limitations and innovatively within the rules pushing forward to achieve greater than the sum of the parts and, and the best baristas will do it. So, Craig, the situation is current that the, the world body has their sponsorships and then each individual national coffee association has their own sponsorships. So in Australia, I think it will continue to be Malconig and Black Eagle or Victoria Arduino. Would your advice to competitors be, you know, use a single, uh, like a uh, grind-on-demand grinder similar to the, the mythos throughout your regional and national competition in preparation for the world or would you sort of just do what you got to do to win each one and then if yeah, it were you? It's hard enough to win without, um, you know, without putting any restrictions in front of yourself. I think that you should use the best thing that you have in front of you um, to, to potentially win because, remember, you don't get to step on the world stage until you win your country and Australia is probably in the, the handful of countries that are the hardest to win because of the depth of competition. So I would say use whatever resource you have in front of you um, to achieve that outcome within the, the rules requirements. Um, and so, but having said that, what's your um, your mental plasticity? Like what sort of malleability do you have with your workflow and with your um, muscle memory and those sorts of things? Because if you do win, you're going to have to use that new Mythos M170, 75, whatever it's called, um, and so, yeah, it could be to your advantage to think your way through some of those restrictions or some of those hurdles using the uh, EADS or ADS or whatever the, the Malkernig um, Hopper Espresso Grind on Demand Grinder is. You know that that wouldn't be not smart. You know, and so um, I, I think that that yes, you are presented with different challenges. Um, Rarely is there so little time between a nationals event and the and the world event that you don't have two, three, four, five, six weeks, possibly months to practice. So um, definitely, if you win your country, you'd want to get on the sponsor's equipment. And normally the sponsors will help you out, get onto their equipment because they want you to do a good job within your country. So um, I think however you get at it, you should just focus on winning. That That should be the only thing if you want to compete at the Worlds. Yeah, absolutely, and, and and really well said. And I think a, a refreshing reminder as well, just because you spend the most money on coffee, this is kind of not what we were talking about, but similar, um, just because you spent the most money doesn't mean you're going to win. So, And just because you bought the most expensive coffee or the highest scoring on the table does not mean you're going to win. Like you look at Agnieszka, for example, used a um, heirloom washed carbonic maceration from uh, from Ethiopia, Messina Village, Um and, you know, that would cost no more than sort of 50 bucks a kilo, you know, ret- re- oh, I don't know about retail, but, you know, you, at cost price at least, it would be no more than 50 bucks a kilo, I, I would have thought. And yet, you know, she'd be Lex Wenneker, who used Sarah Azul Geisha, and, and uh, who came through that year, uh, Matthew Tice, who used the Dodota, and then, you know, on, the, the, 
you know, there's more expensive coffees in the top six. So it goes to show it's not always the most expensive that, that wins. But Craig, I wanted to I want to take a slightly different direction now. You're a um, you're into your wine, and uh, you had you did a video recently with Maxwell about your deductive coffee tasting matrix. Did I say it right? I, I guess so. Yeah. Yep. Yep. All right. Sweet. I didn't. I didn't trademark it, so you can have <laughs> you can have any version of those words. All right. Well, um, it was a really, really uh, sort of seminal routine, I guess, in a lot of ways. And I guess um, I'll add another sneaky thing in here. You were the first Q uh, accredited Q grade instructor in Australia, weren't you? Yeah. So, and and uh, do you, do you do you associate much of that with your sort of um, hobby or penchant for drinking wine privately? Uh, uh, I'm going to say yes and no. Um, to be completely non-committal, I guess you don't end up in these sorts of positions unless you already have a a, a capable palate. Um. You know, I don't think you're going to have non-tasters enjoy things that have flavour, right? I don't think they'd be into it because it's got no, there's no um, emotional and, and mental and, and value out of drinking a more expensive compared to a, a less expensive or a more interesting compared to a less, uh, it's less interesting anything. So I guess whether it's known potential or untapped potential, I, I probably ended up there purely because I, I'm an okay taster, you know, and um, I'm okay at analysing as I'm tasting and putting that into a, a structured format. So, Are you still the only Q-grade instructor in Australia? No, uh, not anymore. Um, ben Bicknell has joined me as well. He's also... From Five Senses? Five Senses, yeah. So I think at any time, the last time I checked, I don't really check, and obviously it's been really difficult doing anything relating to tasting at the moment. But I think there sort of floats around about 45 or 50 Q-instructors around the world at any one time. Um, it's a pretty rigorous process to to get that um, that certification. So it, it's it not not that many people want to go to that amount of effort. I think you really want to enjoy teaching to do it, basically. And could you, uh, for anyone, you know, we might have a new listener to this podcast. You know, I think, oh, good, uh, good God, I've heard of Craig Simon before. So they're tuning in for the first time. What, what's Q grading? Q grading is an international uh, standard for evaluating the quality of coffee. Um, the quality of coffee uh, determines a lot of the time its sale price. So it's a set of standards and protocols that you roast to, that you brew to, that you taste to, uh, and then you um, evaluate 10 different um, components of coffee as you're tasting it onto a score sheet. It's the SCA score sheet that we use to evaluate quality. Um, and the aim is that everyone around the world will be calibrated. So if I score a coffee on that scale out of 100, whatever I score it, someone on the other side of the world can taste exactly the same coffee and they should score it within a very small margin, um, the same. And, and so, yeah, so effectively um, the instructors are charged with making sure the people that become Q graders uh, are both calibrated and understand the process because obviously the, the, um, the jeopardy of of that institution is that it affects farmers directly because it it impacts the the price that they can sell their green coffee for. Right. Now, I want to go back to deductive tasting and how it applies to coffee. I've got a little piece of audio that I'm going to play here. You won't be able to hear it, Craig, but it's going to go for about no, just over a minute. So um, I want everyone to – I could explain the, the matrix myself. I could get you to do it now, but I think 
I'd like to listen to Craig Simon, you know, doing his thing on the world stage. So this is when Craig was last competing in 2018 in Amsterdam. Take a listen. Okay. Time. Imagine we could drink any coffee right now and immediately identify its origin, the varietal, the farm temperature, how it was processed and roasted. We can, and I'm going to show you how. The pages in front of you are the guide to today's presentation, so please follow through on them as I talk and we taste. And there's a copy there for the head judge to take back to the room at the end. My inspiration comes from the sommelier profession and the deductive tasting system that they have developed that lets them determine the provenance and quality of a wine as they taste it. This system identifies primary flavours from varietal and terroir, secondary flavours created during the winemaking process, and tertiary flavours created during ageing. From this information, a sommelier can immediately identify that wine because these flavours are being connected to their source. Using this information, I've created my own system for coffee, including the coffee tasting matrix that we'll be using today. It starts to identify where coffee flavours come from, so we could identify coffee by taste alone. This system would allow us to evaluate a coffee as a finished product. It would allow us to communicate flavours clearly to anyone. And it would also allow the barista to engage the coffee consumer like a sommelier does with wine. Today, I'll be serving you two naturally processed Getcha coffees. All right, so deductive uh, tasting matrix, um, you know, usually applied to wine. It's a tool of the sommelier profession. You applied it to coffee for the first time, or first time that I know of in 2018. Um, do you think it's being used in practice today? Uh, not at all. Oh, well, maybe. Um, I, I'd be really surprised if I was the first person to ever apply it. Um, the, but, you know, I, I, certainly in terms of in the public domain, I feel like it's the first time that something with that level of structure trying to propose that, um, that there is a, a, a tangible value in starting to associate the flavours we experience in coffee to the causes um, I, I felt like that was an important thing to start to seed the idea um, in, in the industry because I think that um, the the thing that inspired me so and cap- captivated me about the the wine matrix is that um, the, obviously it, it's a really mature language, it's a really mature system that's been around for a very long time, the wine one, um, and it's been around long enough that they've been able to accurately um, map flavor profiles and what causes those so that it allows um, them to be able to actually deduce what the wine is without needing to have any information. They can taste it and identify where it's come from and it's vintage and things like that. And I felt like that is something that is light years from where we are with coffee at the moment. You know, the yes, you can taste um, you know, a, a washed yogurt chef Ethiopian and have a pretty sound guess at what it is. You could probably taste a Kenyan, have a pretty sound guess, um, et cetera, et cetera. However, I don't feel like the language is structured to the point where um, it allows us to actually be more flexible in its application. At the moment, particularly as it relates to judging, and I'll pull it back to that, um, there's so much weight on you're going to taste this in my coffee in terms of score that it's led to something, I guess, that's relatively reason, um, recently controversial about um, modified coffees that have 
uh, flavors structured into them, which gives a, a massive competitive advantage, should it be legal, whatever. Um, I don't really care to get into that conversation, although if you push me, I will. Um, and so, but the thing is that if we put it into the real world of consumers, um, you can buy a specialty coffee. I can't use italics with my fingers on a podcast, can I? So in inverted commas, um, you can buy a specialty coffee and it can be uh, on the scale a 92-point coffee. And how it's roasted and how it's brewed can significantly impact your experience. But everyone after it's been evaluated as 92 gets to say this is a 92-point specialty coffee, whether you taste a great version of that or not. Um, and I feel like that's a real shortcoming of experience for consumers because um, you can get a really expensive coffee. They're not just the domain of, of competition and you can sell it and you can handle it excellently and you can handle it poorly, but because of your raw materials cost, it gets to sell at the same price and a customer might either be really turned off if you've done a bad job or really turned on if you've done a great job. But those two experiences are mutually exclusive depending on who they came to. Um, and it could negatively influence their experience if they had a bad experience of that coffee, which devalues that in, in the industry. And I guess that was really my genuine motivation wasn't talking about wine. And that was a large part of the misunderstanding with the judges. They didn't, they didn't see it as what it was trying to suggest. They took it too literally and assumed I was talking about wine, where all I was really doing was referencing a really mature system and structure to help them understand what I was trying to propose much faster and within the, within the limitations of a 15-minute presentation. Um, but that got lost in translation across the table, which I think was a real shame because I, I missed out on the semifinals by a couple of points. I came seventh. And, and the difference between being on the finals and, and being in the semifinals in terms of audience is enormous. If we go back to equity of an equality to all of the competitors, you know, how do we how do we reconcile that aspect? You know, if the judges don't understand what you're saying, if the judges panel that you're on is out of points calibration with the other panels and you miss out because of that, all of those sorts of things, you know, I think there's way more before we get into and we have I've got so sidetracked on the idea of the matrix back into what we were previously talking about it. But if we're talking about equality for all of the, the performers on stage or the talent, as I think we should call them on stage. Um, I don't feel like the talent is treated as the talent a lot of the time. I feel like the talent is the, you know, the, the cattle through the yard and occasionally a couple, you know, stand out, whether it's by accident or, or on purpose or whatever. And I don't necessarily feel that there's equity in how you're evaluated. Um, because there's not a finishing line. I wish that for a barista competition, there was somehow a finishing line and the first person across the finishing line broke the tape and it's unarguable that there's your winner. Um, it's subjective because it's a sensory taste-based experience. And so like the, the idea of, of um, and I guess it's why I'm so, uh, um, I don't want to say positive, but I'm not negative about changing the equipment over because I don't think that's the barrier to making the competition better. And it's not the barrier to people doing well. And when you, when you talk about equality of evaluation, I, would I be correct in sort of saying that you're talking about judging? I think that's a fair um, 
reading of that. Yeah, okay. Well, um, and this is what I spoke about with Maxwell last week because, and it's, you know, I feel like I absolutely relate. Uh, and, you know, not like, I mean, I haven't been treated, I don't feel like I've been treated unfairly by a judge or unfairly assessed at all, but I, and so maybe I don't relate, but I understand. Um, and, you know, Maxwell and I spoke about on the podcast that I released last week about my brother who's a bodybuilder and, you know, bodybuilding's are in, you know, the assessment, I guess, is somewhat similar to the way we assess in um, COVID because it's, it's, it's subjective, you know, it's, uh, you know, he's got bigger muscles than him or whatever, whatever they do. I'm not, I'm, I'm not too into that sort of thing, but anyway, um, you know, you, you get, it's, it's, there's no clear way to win. And, um, and sometimes I feel like we, anyone can go and be a judge. You can walk, and this is, this is kind of what Maxwell was saying, you know, anyone can walk in and sort of go do the calibration and be a judge. Not saying that um, every single person cut out for it or people don't work hard or people don't do a good job, but this is kind of where I'm in two minds about it because I feel bad criticizing people who volunteer their time to do these things um but also you know like what you're saying if you're it, it, there's, a, there's a catch 22 in this it's like yeah you can feel bad for someone like that like i do or but you know what about someone like you who probably you know lived in a cave for four months pr- producing their world brewster routine i don't know if that was really you but you know you work quite hard on it and then um if you feel like you were misunderstood um i can see how you'd feel a little bit hung down by uh, yeah, well, I mean, I spent nine months of every year um, preparing for the next year's competition, and that's not that I spent 12 hours a day in a room, but I, I certainly spent nine months of every year, and that's over a decade. So there's 90 months of uh, of preparing for competitions and practicing thousands of hours and dedicating more thousands of hours to what I was going to present and the ideas and source coffee and working with people and exploring ideas and um, you know modifying processing methods to achieve outcomes and working out how to make equipment work and all of those things and I definitely don't there are many judges if any that spend that amount of time preparing to receive information in a competition format and evaluate it under that level of pressure um, on stage in front of the world and so I think that Yes, sometimes competitors um, are penalised because of that. Sometimes, you know, and and so the flip side is I've heard lots of people say, well, you should present it in a way that the judges can absorb it. But how can you work out what level of absorption ability each of your judges has in front of you? And um, and so that makes it untenable. In, in the sense of, okay, I'm going to modify what I want to present and effectively they're suggesting you should, um, let's call it distill to make it uh, not sound too pejorative. You need to distill what you're talking about um, so that they can get it. And I would argue that what I wanted to present is undistillable in 15 minutes. In fact, I would say I distilled it down to 15 minutes and it still took up a lot of the space to try and get that amount of information across. Um, and, you know, with, with time, I've probably reconciled that to say perhaps my idea, perhaps I didn't work out the best way to say my idea in terms of perhaps I referenced wine too much um, and that misled them. You know, maybe that was my fault. Um, but, you know, certainly in the case of my semifinals routine on, on 2018, one of the judges 
didn't follow my protocols, like didn't follow four of my protocols. And as I was serving that judge my milk beverage, they balked at using the straw that I'd asked them to use because um, they're European and obviously milk coffees in Europe are like boiling hot and they thought I was going to burn their tongue. So that person turned around for five seconds to protest to the head judge, I'm not going to do this. And the head judge says, yes, you're going to do it. What do you think their ability to absorb what I was talking about and evaluate that beverage was going to be? I don't think that's going to be very capable. Um, I asked them to hold the beverage on their pat on the espresso to hold it on their tongue for 10 seconds to give it time to cool down to your body temperature, to give it time for the volatile aromatics to reach their olfactory system so that they could evaluate it thoroughly. And, you know, most of them swallowed the espresso straight away. And, you know, I mean, so like the, at what point do the judges need to reach the level of professionalism where they don't need to say you should change your routine so that we who don't practice for five hours a day for six weeks leading up to competition um, can, can digest it and follow your protocols properly because we're not nervous about just the genuine basics of evaluating your coffee. The number of judges that I see at the back that are, are fearful and terrified of going on stage because they don't know whether they're going to make a mistake or not or whether they can apply the rules is really high. Like how, how are they going to do a great job? And it's not their fault. They're just not treating it like a profession because they're volunteers. And of course, you're not going to treat it like a profession because you're a volunteer, because you don't have any value of winning in, in inverted commas winning, you know, obviously the, the competitors can treat it more professionally because for them, there is the, the, the end carrot dangling in front that you may become the world champion and change your life career path so significantly that it's worth all of the compromises that you that you put on the rest of your life to achieve something that's effectively professional um and yeah i mean it's it's a it's it's a really interesting scenario the i mean my semi-finals judges um i i was apparently the highest scored competitor on that panel um, a flight of judges. So they judged one third of the competitors and I came seventh. No one from that panel made the finals. On their panel was someone who placed uh, second in the first round, someone who placed seventh in the first round, someone who placed ninth in the first round, someone who placed 13th. And none of those made the top six. That to me just, it's incongruous that like it's, 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 I don't see it as, it's possible, but I don't see it as probable. I don't really see how if everyone's calibrated, no one from a panel can make the finals when you've got people that were in the top six on that first round. You know, I, I don't know. That, that to me points to some fundamental issues with how the competition is evaluated that what? need addressing. One thing that Maxwell suggested to, in the last podcast was that, um, you know, you, you have the judge give the score on the spot. So, you know, you don't go backstage and deliberate. You just give the score on the spot, which, you know, wouldn't really alleviate, you know, the situation that you were in. But, um, you know, a, a good suggestion of things that we can do to improve judging because, again, it's it's going to continue to be run by volunteers. And, you know, we rely on these volunteers. So, you know... As, uh, you know, I feel like I'm being a bit mean here, sort of talking about them in a critical way, but you know, also they keep the competition going. So we've got to keep operating within that framework. So um, what else could we do that's practical to sort of improve that? 
Yeah, I mean, the like I like that idea. At the same time, I don't like that idea. Um, but the the one the, I know what he's what he's pointing at with that concept in the back room. There is there is a, a, a rule where you can't be more than you can't be a point out on your same person on the chair, um, and it puts a it puts it. It requires a couple of things for that to work. The first thing is, how can a barista have a round that's 100 points less between rounds if they're not inconsistent in the handles, even on the same handle? So therefore, how can a judge be one point different on the same handle if they can also be capable of delivering 100 points difference between rounds for the same competitor. You know what I mean? It's like you can't have one without the other. So either one judge has to receive a six and one judge receive, receives a one coffee because then you've got, you know, what, 400% spread of points there and you don't pull them both to, a, well, it can't be a six and a one. It has to be a 3.5 and a 4.5. You know, you can't, you, you can't have that if there can also be a hundred point difference between rounds that that's, that's the problem that I have with some of those concepts. How can you pull people into that level of calibration in the back room? If the, if the panels can be that far out of calibration, insinuating that the baristas are consistent enough that on the same handle it'll only be one point apart. doesn't work. The second part of that is um, I've actually forgotten. I, I, I'm sorry. I've gone blank on that one, but. Well, uh, well oh, I'll have it. Oh, that's the other thing. So I, I, uh, the, I know why they do it because it helps them calibrate judges that haven't had enough experience back in the back room. So you could have someone give a six who knows what they're talking about. You could have someone give a one because they're brand new to it and that one's not fair. So you want to calibrate them up so that the person who gave a one has to give a five, right? Because you're effectively teaching them how to taste on stage. I would argue that that means you haven't prepared your judges enough if you need that as a stop measure to make sure someone doesn't get a one and a six. So a bit more preparation of the judges in summary would be a, would be a more practical solution. I think there needs to be professional judges and I don't think all of them need to be, but I think there needs to be enough professional judges that you have at least 50% professional judges on every panel and their scores have to be significantly higher weighted than the, than the people who are um, new amateur volunteer assistants super judges well whatever you want to look at it just capable of being able to absorb what's presented in front of them accurately and fairly now craig i'm going to leave it there for competition stuff i've got just just a a, you know less than a handful of questions left for you um and i haven't i haven't been able to ask you these in the past because you know for whatever reason you know i don't really see you that much the, the one time i did spend a few days with you is when i did that roasting class and you know we we're busy but i want to know the top 5 coffees craig simon's ever tasted now this isn't just craig simon this is q grade instructor 10 year veteran you know done almost everything in coffee loves wine what are the five best who what where why when coffees that you have had I'll try and do it chronologically from the beginning. Give it to me. Uh, The first one that I remember was absolutely incredible that changed my understanding of of the possibility of coffee was from Taylor Brown in 2009, I think, 
at the Victorian competition uh, and she presented a coffee that was, uh, I think it was Arisha Baloya. It was a natural Ethiopian and it was um, incredible, like mind-blowing. The, the, um, she, at the time, she was working for Seven Seeds uh, and, um, you know, Mark was really pushing the boundaries of um, exploring coffees that expressed their origin and terroir a lot more. So it was a lot more fruit-driven and, and, and um, varietal-driven than perhaps roast-driven that back then, you know, still was a relatively new thing um, for the marketplace. Incredible. Let's uh, um, let's before you go on to your next one. I want to give Taylor a little bit of a plug there. So, owner of Taylor Made, if I am I correct in saying that, Taylor Made, so. that's yep. her new business. So, you know, go support her. And I'm writing it down right now because I'm going to ask Taylor on the podcast. All right, number four, Craig, or were you not done with five? Number four, uh, we've done five. Number four, um, I number four. You know what? I'm going to stay for number four. 2011. Um, when I first was exposed to Pete Licata, who ended up being the 2013 world champion and um, ended up being my coaching team for a large part of after that, um, he worked in, he lived in Hawaii and um, he farmed all of his own coffee, like as in for months. He um, picked them all himself. He processed it all himself. He roasted it all himself. He presented it all himself. Um, and he probably was the first of the mega super professional barista on stage presentation that um, at the time maybe was was ahead of its time. He, he, he ended up second instead of probably, you know, it wouldn't have been out of place to have been first with that routine. Um, and so I didn't taste that coffee. What I tasted, oh, no, actually I did taste that coffee, but I also tasted a couple of other coffees. And um, he worked with a gentleman in... in um, in Hawaii called Miguel and Miguel was a, a, a botanist and uh, and a, a farming nerd and and all that sort of stuff and he um, they had replicated processing methods of different countries in specifically Indonesia uh, Giling Basar which is the wet hulled um, a Guatemalan style processing a Kenyan style processing using this Kona coffee from that they picked on the same day and um and the you know the Kenyan coffee tasted like a Kenyan coffee, the um, and it wasn't SL twenty eight SL thirty four all that stuff. Uh, the the Gilling Basar Indonesian style tasted just like an Indonesian Sumatran coffee, um, et cetera, et cetera. And and it 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 seriously opened my eyes to how much impact processing has on flavor. Now I've got a question for you here because you just mentioned Pete Licata. We spoke about John Gordon before. We also mentioned Todd Suter in a um, in you know in passing story just before. Now they're all three. All three of them are similar in appearance. You know, uh, yeah, for lack of a better phrase, bald with a beard. Um, my question is: Has anyone ever seen the three in the same room? Has any anyone ever seen two of them in the same room? Because I'm not quite sure. It's a good question. I think it's fair and valid. And we might request that to make sure. Otherwise, we're going to have to do a DNA test. Look, if anyone could send us a picture with proof that, you know, both of them, you know, or two of them, two of the three are at least in the same room together, you know, I'd love to see it. You know, I'm not convinced, but, you know, we'll get there. I'm probably sure all three of them would be offended for different reasons, but, you know, let's not go there. Number three, Craig. Well, yeah, I think they're all definitely offended. Um, what I can safely say is, and, and I hope none of them are offended by this other than John 
at a certain point in time, John had by far the best beard out of the three of them. Oh my goodness! Todd combs his beard every day, beard every day. You know, uh, well, I, I'm sure he does a great job. But I, I've got to give if you know if we're on stage for World Beard Championships, John's getting my vote in in a subjective uh, visual only assessment. What, what are we going like the 2010 vintage beard, or what, what, what year are we talking? Well, he had like the. I felt like he had the steam train, like the snow clearer. The steam and, train. Yeah, the steam train, snow clearer. You know, like the 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 um, the, the plow truck. Yeah, yeah, plow truck. Amazing, <laughs> so good. Uh, okay, number three, number three. We we digress. Number three. Uh, where am I at for number three? Do you know? I feel like three, two, and one. And I know this is the world's biggest cop out, um, and I'm going to take it. Because three, two, and one, I feel like are those coffees that sit on the table. Oh, you know, actually, I'm, I take that back. Um, chronologically, I should have put another one in there, but I'm putting it in at three because it was amazing. There was a Honduras cup of excellence coffee on the table for my first Q class as a student back in 2011. That was mind-bogglingly good. It was so incredible. Um, and this was back when the instructor was allowed to bring their own coffees. And my instructor was the owner of Atlas Coffee, which is out of, I think it's Portland or Seattle or something like that, Craig Holt, um, which he subsequently sold. But uh, he tells some amazing stories of traveling the world for, for decades, sourcing coffee for his company. And so he, br- he brought out these coffees, amazing. And the, yeah, the Honduras Cup of Excellence coffee that he had on the table was showstopper by far. Um, absolutely amazing. The last two, I'm going to be really um, self-absorbed and narcissistic and say were two coffees that I've used. Um, the first coffee was uh, Hachira from 90 Plus back in 2013. Um, and I would say this is back when their, their processing profiles were a little bit more traditional, a lot more traditional, actually. Um, they certainly have really pushed far into the future of being as progressive um, probably as anyone and possibly like were the kind of beginnings of these really popular processing method um, explorations. Uh, the Hechira was a natural Ethiopian and it was just, it was just beyond, beyond incredible. It was so clean. Um, it was so articulate and it was so elegant and sophisticated. And it was at a time where, trying to achieve those with natural coffees was every um, farmer and processor's desire and, and goal. And, um, and there's part of me that feels sad that we lost some of that impetus. I feel like a lot of natural process coffees, a lot of experimental coffees are pushing well away from elegant, sophisticated, classy um, and clean. You know, I feel like some are getting into such interesting territory that not that long ago would have been considered defective if only for the fact that every cup tastes the same you can't call it that mm. um and you, you know the um and you probably, like the, are you sort of referencing here we, we, we get a, we've got a lot more anaerobic sort of fermentations than we did you know three or four years ago is that kind of what you're is that one of the things that sort of crept into coffee that sort of takes away from those more sophisticated or, you know, naturally Possibly. occurring flavours? If I give my coffee number one, we can we can talk to that point. So number one, I think the best coffee I've ever tasted, absolutely the best coffee I've ever served, was my competition coffee in 2014. 
Um, it was the hybrid processed uh, Gesha from 90 Plus's Panama farm that I worked with Joseph to, um, to create a processing method that did stuff that up until then wasn't done intentionally. And Joseph, left- for those listening, is Joseph Brodsky. Follow him, follow him on Instagram. He loves these waterfalls and all sorts of natural things. But, yes, go on. Yeah, so, um, you know, it was one of the first times definitely publicly announced that coffee was left in cherry for an extended period of time on purpose, whereas previously all thought processes around that were if you left it, you had an uncontrolled fermentation and et cetera, et cetera, undesirable. Um, and, you know, and, and my idea was to hybridise it so you could capture some of the natural process up front. And then we did the, you know, then I asked to pulp and ferment um, without water for a certain period of time. And then we rinsed it and dried it for the final bit. Um, And the, uh, it was, it was really quite incredible. I still, like I said, I still haven't had anything like it since. Um, And, you know, I I would love to be proven wrong. I would love people to, um, to get in touch with you and tell me that I'm wrong because my wife would love me to be wrong, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think definitely at that time, Gesha Coffee on stage was not remotely popular whatsoever. Certainly um, that conical grinder on stage in 2014, no one was putting conical grinders up on stage. Um, and, you know, it got me to fourth in the world. Um, and, and, and that was with a Gesha that really didn't fit the rules in 2014. It, it wasn't until... Um, my mind has slipped. Whoever won 2016, I can't remember the gentleman's name. He won with a Gesha and rules really started to change around there. Berg Wu. There we go. Berg won with a Gesha and rules were softened to not have to have some of the crema rules and, and stipulations and things like that that really disadvantaged me with a Gesha. Um, but really, I feel like that intentional um, modified processing really started a bit of a trending competition. Certainly, I feel like it influenced Sasha's decision the following year, and he presented a carbonic maceration coffee. Um, but, you know, because Sasha and I had competed for, for nine years together, um, you know, and 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 uh, I think he credit you know, with Matthew Perger as well in, the, in there, I think Sasha credits the fact that we all went up against each other with such high quality and standards and skills that allowed him to win 2015 and then just go straight on to winning the World Championships because he'd, He'd had such a um, a challenging pathway to create that win that he was prepared and ready, and and you know I like I like to think that that started that idea of a lot of these processing methods. I know I wasn't I know it wasn't me. I'm taking way too much credit. I know that farmers and producers were exploring stuff well before this, but it felt like it got its it got its um, time in the sun on stage, and that allowed it to become valuable for the farmers it wasn't about them exploring stuff to try and uh you know interest themselves or experiment or try and get consistency things like that it actually added value to the coffee because back in 2014 coffee you couldn't find coffee that was expensive as it is now one thing one thing i'd really like to sort of ask you is that you know you, you you mentioned there some of the people that you competed against so you know the australian competition you've got people like yourself sasha sestic Mac Perger. I think I saw in a video one year when the year Sasha won, I think Matthew Lewin was in the top six. And then I forget the guy's name, but he was working at Proud Mary's Tom, someone. Oh, oh uh, yeah. Um, yes. Yeah. I know who you mean, but I can't remember his name. And there's another guy whose name has evaded me as well. But 
Was the was the rivalry intense there? Because like you're all seriously working to outperform each other, outdo each other, and you know, you, it's like you're three of the most widely celebrated coffee professionals that have ever come out of Australia. What was the was, was there what what was the competition like? What was the rivalry like? I mean, I know you're probably all cordial, and you all still are cordial, but you know, what was the dynamic back then? Uh, look, I think maybe there's probably some friendly banter. I feel like um, I feel like the single-mindedness that you have to be that successful often means that you're not really that influenced by your surroundings. Um, I feel like, as a general rule, everyone was professionally courteous. You know, I don't think anyone was out to play games or things like that. Yeah, there was probably a few jabby banter things amongst people, but. Um, you know, I think at the end of the day, the level of detail that started to come into these presentations um, meant that you, you didn't really have time to, to be worrying about ribbing someone else or, you know, causing them any undue distress along the way. You just focused on doing your best. Uh, certainly that was my experience. Um, and I don't feel like anyone backstage, on stage ever uh, tried to impact me negatively with their behaviour either. So I'd like to think that that was their experience too. Yeah, yeah, and I, I'm sure it is. But uh, I guess, uh, like, I mean, everyone, yeah, I know that you all have immense respect for each other. And, you know, I've, I've heard it, I've heard you say it about each of you, each of you privately, you know, between you, Matt and Sasha per se. Um, but, yeah, just, just curious because, like, for me, that's probably, you know, maybe the strongest era of barista competitors in Australia to date. They're, you know, you, you, you probably... Started with the Scotty Callahans, and then um, you know whoever else came through. Then you've got people like Dave Macon. Then you've got that sort of really, really strong, um, those strong years. And I, I really think that was probably some of the strongest years of Australian Brewster competitions between youth, uh, you guys. Probably um, Dave Macon and Scotty Callahan competed at the same time. So Dave and Scott, um, they alternated years that they won. Dave was oh six oh eight. Scotty was oh seven, and then. 10, 10. Um, so they had a pretty strong rivalry, but I think below Scott and Dave, like it fell away pretty quickly. Um, yeah, I like to think between Sasha, me and and Matthew that we had some, some we pushed each other to be a, as good as we could possibly achieve. And, you know, you think about that being 2012, through till 2015, so 12, 13, 14, 15, so four years straight um, where it was such high quality that, um, oh, sorry, 2011 with Matthew winning 2011 too. So, yeah, five years, such high quality, um, respect. And and I think the thing that really um, made such a big difference about that time is I feel like we all pushed really hard, not just to win, but actually we, we came to stage with really thoughtful, thought-provoking or innovative ideas that push the boundaries of what coffee could be. And I feel like perhaps it, it, it was a golden time to have the flexibility to do that. And if I was maybe um, to flip my position and feel, to talk retrospectively about the last hour and a half, maybe it is a part where having all of these restrictive, um, you must use this equipment, Maybe it does restrict some of that um, investigation and some of that innovation. Yes, it certainly does. We had free play on a lot of things, but there still was restrictions in what we did too. So 
um, it probably would have driven us down a different part of investigation. And and I feel like I feel like for all of the Australian champions, um, and I'm sure we could talk about the world champions, but I guess I have a, a much closer experience with the Australian champions. I feel like all of them would have overcome any of these equipment challenges and still presented something really innovative. Craig, that's an excellent point. I've got one more question before we wrap up the podcast. What's something you would like people to know about you that they don't? You're a very um, closed-in guy. You present a bit more sort of, um, dare I say it, you seem a lot more grumpy than you actually are, and that's just being that's just being frank with you. You're a very happy guy. When once once I get to talk to you, you know, it's it's just hard getting to talk to you, Craig. But what's something you want people to know about you that you think they probably don't? Uh, I don't know. You've put me on the spot here. I don't know whether I do. I say something that that will, uh, you know, do I just say something? Oh, you know what? Here's something. Um, I. I actually wanted to be an artist um, when I was at school. I didn't even want to be a musician, which is kind of weird because that's what I ended up being. But um, I really loved art, and uh, and I actually had one of my paintings hung in the um, in the New South Wales Art Gallery for a short period of time. There, um, it was like a youth thing. So maybe that's something people don't know. Maybe you could re- rebirth yourself as like some big NFT dealer. Could you get? Could you get? Could you restructure that into NFTs? Someone tried to get me to sell coffee NFTs and I was just like, you're on drugs. <laughs> I don't even know what an NFT is still, still but, you know. I, I'm not amazingly clear on it either, but uh, I'm pretty certain a taste-based uh, beverage experience doesn't quite work for an NFT. Look, yeah, me neither. But, Craig, I, um, you know, like we said at the beginning of the podcast, I've been harassing you for some time to come on this podcast and I feel so lucky because, you know, as someone who looked up to people like you and a lot of people I've interviewed, you know, I started off as a copy professional looking up to people like you and then, you know, through, you know, pure, you know, being a pest, I get to, you know, interview you as well. But, you know, it's, uh, and so I'm so fortunate to to have interviewed some of my favourite uh, copy professionals, including yourself. So thank you for your time today, mate. And, uh, you know, this really, really sort of nuanced and good discussion. I think it's good for the industry. Oh, it's a pleasure to have a chat to you. Thanks for, thanks for taking the time. You know, I didn't, I didn't go out there intending to be uh, an influence and and uh, and um, inspiration for people. I've just gone about trying to do the best I can. So if um, you know if it's helped people do a better job or if it's helped them enjoy their coffee journey more, then that's that's really rewarding to hear and uh, flattering. All right. Well, everyone, Craig Simon of Criteria Coffee. You can you can buy some stuff off the Criteria Coffee website. I recommend you do it. It's great coffee um, and. One of the partners as well. The very, some very, very talented people roasting out of criteria at the moment. But Craig, thank you so much for your time. And as always, everyone, please stay cool.